0: Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia (laughs) Vasquez. Megan Down is back, and tonight she's brought along Los Angeles Times film reviewer, Karina Chicano. A brilliant young critic who has written for Salon and Entertainment Weekly, she recently wrote an essay about the lack of substantial roles for comedic actresses. The idea that a girl might play anything other than the girl in a studio comedy, wrote Chicano, is so far out of the mainstream that it's considered an experimental concept, not to mention a major financial risk. Recorded before a live audience at NPR West in Culver City as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, Chocano and Daum discuss movies like Knocked Up and The Heartbreak Kid to delve into the subject of women, Hollywood, and whether or not there's any truth to the notion that diminishing female roles are a result of diminishing female audiences. Here is Megan Daum.
1: Thank you for coming tonight. I feel a little relieved because you all made it and we made it. and It's my great pleasure to introduce someone who I'm not only a fan of, but who is also a good friend. Like More than a few readers, I first discovered Karina Chicano's work on the online magazine Salon in the, in the late 90s, in the mid... Yeah, you know, in, in the 90s, in the late, late 90s, when she was just starting out, right out of high school. <laughs> and as you probably know, Salon uh, has always been filled with extraordinary writing, but Karina's pieces were standouts even there. Um, Her insights into popular culture, particularly television, managed to bring an erudite perspective to even the most inane of programs, (laughs) and they almost always did so hilariously. Karina went on to become a TV critic at Entertainment Weekly and then at the Los Angeles Times, where she offered trenchant, thoughtful, and again, very witty opinions. As a film critic for the LA Times, a job she's done since 2004, Karina practices criticism the way I, at least, believe it should be practiced. We will never get a plain old thumbs up or thumbs down from a Karina Chocano review. Instead, she engages with movies not only as individual entities, but as pieces of a larger cultural framework. In an era when a lot of critics are content to assign a movie three stars or four stars and call it a day, Karina doesn't just write reviews, she writes essays. And she not only critiques the movies, but truly discusses them. And somehow, miraculously, she manages to do this two or three or four or five times a week. So the reason that that we're gathered here tonight is that recently Karina wrote a particularly astute essay in the LA Times about a subject that turns out to be one of the subjects a lot of people seem to have on their minds, commenting on the strange way that women in Hollywood studio pictures, particularly romantic comedies or character-driven movies, have been stripped of their personalities, individuality, and in many cases any meaningful dialogue at all, Karina suggested that female characters often amount to little more than the girl, or depending on the film, the hot girl. The girl and the hot girl, she wrote, have merged to produce a gorgeous, well-meaning, inoffensive, lover object devoid of any motivating purpose and quite possibly manufactured in Stepford. The essay got an overwhelming response, overwhelmingly positive, so much so that we thought it was worth discussing in a public forum. So after I bombard her with questions, I look forward to hearing some questions from uh, all of you. So before I blather on any more, I will introduce Karina Chocano. Hi. (laughs) So... I just want to make clear that we don't have any data or scientific evidence for for what we'll be discussing. We're in in certain ways we're we're just grasping, but there is pretty there's a pretty palpable feeling in the culture that when movies when again we're talking about studio movies and we're not talking about all of those movies and we're not even necessarily talking about these movies being bad. But um, I think you are pointing out that in a way we are sort of obsessed with serving this mythical young male demographic and so much so that we've come to believe that we have to serve them in a way that
2: perhaps is not even necessary. I mean, is that, is that what sort of drove you to write the piece? Yeah, I mean, I always wonder sort of how a lot of these movies have sort of taken roles that that might have had more to them and just sort of reduced them to their, to their essence. And sometimes it, to the degree that it doesn't even serve the story. And I think that, you know, if we're just throwing around theories, I mean, that's that's one that that the idea of serving the demographic has sort of been taken so literally and it's something that's been repeated and taken as a, as 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 some kind of, you know, ultimate goal. And and so, the, you know, the idea of serving the demographic has somehow become synonymous with catering to it in a way that only panders to it and then you know and things just sort of get narrower and narrower un- until it results in maybe the inclusion of, of other types of characters.
1: And I guess I mean what we're talking about specifically is the way you see, you know, and again not in all the movies but you know Knocked Up is is a pretty good example, which a movie that I really liked and I think you did too. Mm-hmm. I mean it was it was funny. Mm-hmm. But you know there are aspects of that particularly having to do with this female character that just seem wildly implausible. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that you know sort of was a really good illustration of what you talked about. When you, de- you describe the sort of dynamic of this hyper-achieving, beautiful, sort of perfect woman and just the kind of schlub that that she ends up with, the the way you describe it... Oh, don't be surprised. You know why you're here. Don't be, You're not so surprised. But so, so, I mean, the way you describe it in the piece, the dynamic is this. He's a schlub, she's beautiful, he's active, she's passive, he's maladjusted, she's placid... He's unreliable and immature. She's patient and forgiving. He's funny and charming. She's conventional and dull. He's the subject. She's the object. Okay. Yeah,
2: well, that's the thing. I mean, in a way, I think that a lot of movies have taken the idea of the strong female character or something and placed her above, repro- above reproach and made her into this sort of personality-free paragon of perfection in every way. And that's terrible. <laughs> you know, it's like in, in that movie in particular he's a, a person, a recognizable human being, and she's someone whose life just doesn't... You know, you're watching the film, and her circumstances don't make any kind of sense because she's been shoehorned into the situation.
1: Yeah, and just, you know, I assume most people here have seen the movie, but, I mean, just to recap, to refresh the memory, <laughs> she's, she's sort of a correspondent, kind of glamorous correspondent on an Entertainment Tonight type kind of show... Of show. Presumably, you know she's an on-air personality. Somehow, she doesn't earn enough money that she can't live anywhere but the guest house of her sister's place,
2: uh, or she, she doesn't wish to. She doesn't. Yeah, she, she doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have this, any kind of you know,
1: aspire to mm-hmm. sort of live on her own. We don't know how old she is. I mean, I'm assuming she's in her 23. Like twi- 23. Oh, she's yeah. 23.
2: <laughs> I think I remember. Um, that.
1: <laughs> again, she gets. She has a one-night stand with this guy, which I suppose is plausible because she's mm-hmm. drunk. And you know, the guy is the guy is, you know, sort of goofy, overweight, unemployed, you know, hangs out with his friends, smokes pot, you know, sort of Beavis and butthead uh twenty you know, fifteen years later kind of character. And she gets pregnant by him and um actually, you know, she she decides to keep the baby, but she's gonna also sort of we're supposed to believe that um, an incredible romance is going to develop between these people, which, which is fine, but for some reason, the dynamic that we see in a lot of these movies, and particularly in Knocked Up, forces her to just be too good to be true and him to be too ridiculous for someone like her to ever mm. you know, respond to in real life.
2: Yeah, and well. also I think what's interesting to me about it is that they set up this situation where these people are polar opposites, but, but they don't follow through in really interesting ways because they've made her really beautiful and really successful at a really young age. But they don't give her friends. They don't give her right. a social life. They don't give her a boyfriend, an ex-boyfriend, a guy that's interested in her, a life of her own, of any kind. She, her only friend is her sister, and she lives in her sister's yard. You know, <laughs> she, she, does, she, like, it's, what's interesting is that it, what I couldn't believe about the movie, which is so smart and so funny that, you know, every line is hilarious, is that they had a great situation and then they refused to play those situations. And that's what I find is interesting. And that's something that I think we see all the time. Like, it's as if they don't want... You know, he gets a lot of time with his friends to talk about why it's inconvenient for him to have a child right now or whatever. But she never gets that time with her friends. She never has to justify her decisions to anyone really that much. Or, or she never has to try to integrate him into her life in, a, in the same way that, that he does. And I just think that's, that's, the, that's the telling thing because um, that's where the conflict would be and that's where the humor would be. And it is extremely funny anyway, but you, you, would, you would get a more complete view of... Of that situation
1: right, I mean, and you know we were talking about this before, and it seems like a lot of it has to do with the whole notion of a protagonist and and what a protagonist is and and you know the, it's it's almost as if with this model, you can't have the protagonist be anything but the the default person is is a man, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that you know that is isn't okay half the time or like more than a little bit <laughs> half the time but it's interesting how in this particular kind of film it, it does seem to be quite a bit more than three quarters of the time mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. this happens I mean you talked about the Heartbreak Kid also in, in your piece
2: Right, I mean the Heartbreak Kid is another interesting example because I mean it's a far worse movie but you know it's amazing to watch that movie and, and then watch the, the the original that it was based on because in order to what, what they do in that movie—that's really interesting—is in order to make a side with the protagonist, the Ben Stiller character, who, who in the original was played by Charles Grodin, they kind of make. Well, I don't know. You know, have people seen people the are...
1: heartbreaking? No, nobody saw no, seen the new one. No one's <laughs> seen the new one. People have seen the
2: old one. In the old, the original is is a classic yeah. movie directed by Elaine May and. and and it's about a guy who marries his girlfriend and they, they go to Florida for their honeymoon and he regrets the marriage right away. And while on the honeymoon, he meets this sort of goddess from Minnesota. They're from New York, and uh, played by Sybil Shepherd. And he decides to leave his wife for, for Sybil Shepherd the, the, while the on bland, the honeymoon.
1: The bland shiksa goddess. Right, I mean, there's a lot of There's a lot of cultural sort of... Um, exposition going... I
2: mean, they're in New York,
1: they have it, you know, I guess they have a, you know, a rabbi marries them, they drive to
2: Florida, and... And then he falls in love with this girl from Minnesota, and and breaks up with his wife during the honeymoon. And meanwhile, she's been locked up in their hotel room with a terrible sunburn the whole time. So, that movie, you know, what it's talking about is, it's basically, I mean, he's the, the protagonist of the story, but we're not supposed to find... It's not important that we find him likable. I mean, the point of the story is that we see this this interesting, crazy mistake that he makes with his life, and then he goes off and follows Sybil Shepherd to Minnesota and is this fish out of water, and there's a very ambiguous ending. And so you see, like, sort of the, the consequences well, of this... Well, you're watching his unraveling.
1: Movie. I mean, you're right. looking at a, at a huge psychological case, yeah. really. And, I mean, that's what the movie is about. And, right. it, you know, and in a lot of ways... You know that was a, that kind of movie happened in the '70s more often than it happens now but but i haven 't seen the the New Heartbreak Kid, but maybe you can um
2: right so know, it, so that movie on. you know it 's a very interesting sort of sociological psychological situation that you 're watching and in this one, the character is played by Ben Stiller and he meets this woman the the woman that he marries is this incredibly beautiful woman, whereas um, in the original she 's played by Jeannie berlin and she 's supposed to be you know cute but just run of the mill girl so it's almost like there's an imperative for the Ben Stiller's girlfriend to be extremely attractive and and then in order for him to be blameless in the dumping of her when he meets someone else on his honeymoon they make her completely insane and horrible in every way imaginable like you know from the minute they get on the road he starts discovering terrible things like she doesn't really have a job, she's a volunteer, so she doesn't make any money, she's, she was a cocaine addict, she, you know, she's crazy and horrible in every way, like things come out of her nose Charles, all the time. Charles
1: Groden would have loved all those things. Yeah. That, of <laughs>
0: You're listening to Megan Down with Los Angeles Times film critic Karina Chicano. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot We'll return to Megan Down with Karina Chicano in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Everyone here at Southern California Public Radio, here's wishing you a happy new year. Thank you for your continued support and for listening to 89.3 KPCC.
3: I'm Ted Chen in for Larry Mantle. Coming up on Monday's Air Talk, just days before the Iowa caucuses, we'll check in with Campaign Giuliani. He's been slipping in the polls, but does Rudy Giuliani have a plan to regain his frontrunner status now that Mike Huckabee has grabbed much of the GOP spotlight? And guest host John Bupre will talk about the most important humanitarian stories of 2007. That's on Monday's Air Talk at 10 a.m. on 89.3 KPCC.
0: What do local high school kids want the candidates to talk about? War? Education? Try the national debt.
1: We're concerned about the debt because we're going to grow up into that world. We're we're entering it at the end of this year, and we're going to have to deal with trying to get that money.
0: Hi, I'm Kitty Feldy. We'll have that story Monday during Morning Edition and All Things Considered right here on 89.3 KPCC.
3: The tax year is ending soon. When you make a year end contribution to Southern California Public Radio, you're supporting the news and information you rely on every day from KPCC and KUOR. Plus, it gives you a deduction on your 2007 taxes. But don't wait. Do it now before the end of the year. Go online today to kpcc.org and make your contribution. Thank you for your support.
0: Claudia Vasquez. this is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Megan Down with Los Angeles Times film critic, Karina Chicano.
1: You know, as somebody who goes to a lot of movies and writes about them, do you feel like audiences truly can't handle a, a character that's not likable or whose, whose motivations aren't telegraphed in this extremely literal way? Where's it coming from?
2: Well, that's, I mean, that's always the question that I have, and I don't know who could answer that. My feeling is that that's not true, because it's not true for me and it's not true for people that I know, but seems to be that, that you know, since you see these certain rules being sort of complied with, it seems... Or you see repetition of certain types of, of certain tropes and certain characteristics, then it just seems like that's the belief.
1: Well, and there's also a conventional wisdom in Hollywood right now that an actress cannot open a, a major motion picture. <clears throat> you know, I mean, we hear that, and people who are writers and producers l- lament that. You know, it's funny, I, we were talking about this the other day. The, you know, Julia Roberts is, a kind, is the kind of actress who, perhaps, we you know we, we would never think that we would be sort of feeling nostalgia for the kinds of movies that she made and the kind of performances that she gave or the characters that she was allowed to play, and really. You don't even see a Julia Roberts character anymore. Right.
2: Well, that was one of the things when I was writing the piece that I was trying to think, well, you know, h- how long has it been like this? And suddenly I, I thought about that movie, My Best Friend's Wedding. And I don't know if anyone remembers that movie. I think it was 99 ish. But it, it, you know, it was a Julia Roberts plays a woman who has been best friends with a guy played by Dermot Mulroney for. 15 years, and he calls her one day to say he's getting married, and then she realizes, oh, no, I love him, and I must stop this marriage. And so she gets there, and she finds that the uh, fiance is Cameron Diaz, and she turns out to be okay. So it turns out to be this movie between these two women, and sort of... Dur- Mulroney is, you know, like... The tertiary character, <laughs> yeah. literally. And, but it's about, you know, how who's going to win this. And it's, you know, it's done... At the time, it didn't seem so. Maybe, but you know, now it seems like wow—you don't really see. Now it's
1: like an Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, you don't. You don't tend to. You don't see that, that perspective explored that quite as often. Right. Um, in that type of film.
1: I mean, I don't know if you can, I mean, maybe we should just think out loud. Like, if, if that kind of film was going to be made today, what do you think would happen? I mean, it's almost like that third step of, oh, the Cameron Diaz character is not you know, somebody we can hate. You know, she is somebody who, you know, is, is sympathetic. The,
2: well, really, or, or it's just that the, you know, the, the pursuer in that film is Julia Roberts. Right. I mean, she's the person who's going after something, and then she has to sort of come to terms with the fact that she's too late, and she should have done it earlier, and, you know, she she goes through this process and we see this whole experience through her eyes which is i think how still most films are and you know and films have always been that we get the human experience from from both sides but it's interesting how mainstream the idea it seems to me i mean this is like a feeling that we pick up and how mainstream the idea has become that that we need to see it very specifically through one set set of eyes.
1: Yeah, now you, you got a lot of mail on this essay and a lot of it came from people in the industry it seems, especially women who sort of said that they've been fighting this battle for a long time and I mean based on what you told me, it seems like the, the gist of, of a lot of these letters was that not only were you know were they tired people tired of this phenomenon from an audience perspective or or from a professional perspective but from an audience perspective i mean men i mean it's insulting to men to be sort of assumed that you're so sort of myopic and, and uninterested in the rest of the world that you would never go to a movie that had like a, a woman in, in the lead i mean maybe maybe I'm, we'll we'll take a poll in, in a little bit but yeah so npr is not a representative sample of an npr listener but i mean you know a lot of, I thought it was interesting because a lot of the writers, you know, you heard from people who were screenwriters and who had, you know, gone into, you know, pitch meetings, and, and a lot of them said that they were told often that they needed to have their female characters be likable, you know, again. And it, it's like, what, what does that word mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even as a, as a writer, as, as a novelist, I mean, this is something that I run up against a lot, too. Like, this character, if the character has any sort of nuance or smokes or something, you know, it's yeah. like suddenly that, you know, they're, they're a villain. But I mean, it keeps coming up that you know the comic actress, for instance, there's sort of no place for that person. And and I just want to read, um, you know, in addition to those points, I want to read a couple of things um, from one letter that was actually printed in the LA Times. And I'm just paraphrasing, but this came from a screenwriter who talked about sort of what she and her writing partner were told often when they went into meetings by executives. And one of the things they were told is, if we thought we could market female-driven comedy, we'd be all over this script, but women just don't go to movies enough. Or they say, our company just doesn't do female-driven comedy, or the sweetest thing just wasn't very good and didn't do that well in the box office. Now, what is The Sweetest Thing? Yeah, I heard
2: this from more than one person. The Sweetest Thing was um, uh, kind of a raunchy comedy in the vein of There's Something About Mary with, um, I, I don't really, it's been a while, but with Cameron Diaz and Christina Applegate and Selma Blair in the lead. And so it, it just had that same type of Farrelly Brothers humor, and it didn't do, it wasn't very good, and it didn't do very well. And it's just, but that film came out, I think it was 99 also? It was in the '90s, mm-hmm. and it's just interesting that no matter how many flops you know you can have, you can have any number of flops that like a big name comedian can be in, and no one says, you know, you know, we're not going to make movies about boys anymore because they just don't oh, do. No. Well. Okay. You know, I mean, to, to use that as an example is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah.
1: Your piece had some, you know, a little bit of overlap with the piece actually that was in the New Yorker mm-hmm. by by David Denby, and he was he was talking he was sort of using the same kind of syndrome to talk about you know, the sort of old-style romantic comedy had really men and women positioned as, as equals. And that's where the tension of the film came from. And I'm just going to read a little bit from his piece because I think it's, it's very much in the same vein. He describes, uh, you know, I read your description of this guy, this sort of Seth Rogen is the person, the name we attach to this figure now. But um, this is what David Denby says. He's single, but if he does have a girlfriend, she works hard. Usually she's the same age as he is, but but seems older, as if the disparity between boys and girls in ninth grade had been recapitulated 15 years later. Mm -hmm. She dresses in Donna Karen or Ralph Lauren or the like. She's a corporate executive or a lawyer or works in TV, public relations, or an art gallery. That's how she can afford the uh, Donna Karen suits mm-hmm. if you work in an art gallery. everybody knows that. Uh, She's good-tempered, honest, great-looking, and serious. She wants to get to the next stage of life, settle down, marry, maybe have children. Apart from getting on with it, however, she doesn't have an idea in her head, and she's not the one who makes the jokes. Later on, he, he gets at a really important point, which is that the best directors of romantic comedy in the 1930s and 40s, Frank Capra, Gregory LaCava, Leo McCary, Howard Hawks, Preston Sturges, knew that the story would not only be funnier, but much more romantic if the fight was waged between equals. Now, that mm-hmm. seems to be like totally forgotten these days. Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely, and I think he says this somewhere else in the piece, but when he says equals, he doesn't mean Donna suit. and high salary, and glamorous job. He means usually broke, like, you know, scrappy, funny. She's usually a liar, or she, you know, she's always getting in trouble. like Or smokes. Or or smokes. You know, But and it, you know, isn't um, some kind of paragon of perfection, and isn't above reproach in this, I don't know, in this corporate way. But they're, you know, they're matched wits, usually. Right. Yeah, you know,
1: actually, that is true, because when you have... It's almost like having a power suit or a BMW or like an office with a big shiny desk is is a stand-in for having a personality. Yeah, right. Right. I I mean, that's no—it's the the replacement.
2: It's the replacement for the personality. It's like you get to have this, so you know that's that's enough.
1: Yeah, (laughs) not not to, to date ourselves, but I mean, it's true. Also. When we were teenagers, which was like also 1999, um,
2: everything happened in 1999.
1: So maybe a little bit before then, (laughs) the movies that teenagers went to tended to be movies that boys and girls would go together Mm -hmm. to, unless we were like in some parallel universe. I mean, you know, let's think of the movies that were teen comedies: The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Mm -hmm. Molly Ringwald Mm -hmm. was could open a movie Mm -hmm. in the 1980s. And just and she could do it with wearing, like, not only not a bikini, but, like, a lot of clothes, like, a lot of layers, <laughs> always. So what do you think about that?
2: Well, I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that I just w- wonder about all the time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that was the beginning of the teen movie. That was the beginning of the teen movie, pretty much, as we know it. That was, I think, when... Well, n- not quite, but, I mean, it, it was a, a time when that was, you know... Well, John Hughes was a major... Yeah, who, You know, presence in that. Yeah, who made people care again about that age group as an audience. And so it's interesting because I think that that was, maybe I'm romanticizing it, but looking back, it does seem like it was a more egalitarian time for those types of characters.
1: Yeah, and I mean, how, you know, when you were a teenager, how did you make your decisions on what movies to see? I mean, I guess. Perhaps there weren't quite as many, but they're,
2: you know... I guess there weren't quite as many, but it did seem like, you know, it, it must be that, it, part, part of it must be that. I mean, we went to see what whatever there was, but there was a sense that, you know, I think as a teenager, you would just go, especially in the summers, you know, I don't know, you would go see Greystoke and <laughs> whatever, whatever was out there. But I, I, I don't, you know, people got excited, I think, about movies that were aimed at them, but I don't uh, remember, I mean, you know, for whatever this is worth, I don't remember sort of... Feeling like we would only be excited about movies that were very directly aimed at us.
1: Right. Yeah. I I don't know if that's
2: changed now. I mean, it's, but.
1: Because you would go to a movie that had Meryl Streep. Right. Or Deborah Winger or Holly Hunter. I mean, it seems to me that with a few exceptions, you don't really have sort of contemporary equivalents of those actresses. Right. I mean, that's maybe another subject a little bit, but, you know, it is. It's funny. We well, I, I think
2: that the, that in general, studios are more focused on when they make bigger films on sort of certain demographics. And so, those types of films that maybe would have been a large studio movie in those days are, are, are more of a specialty division type of film today. Well, so, it's not, it's not mainstream. I think what we're talking about is like if you can think about what is considered mainstream, it's interesting because then it, it you know, it tells us like, well, what are we con- supposed to consider sort of normal or the broad or of interest to everybody?
1: And it's really a sort of counter-intuitive process, because, I mean, everything is about specialization now. Everything is about exactly what you want. I mean, you turn your your computer on, and it's like showing you the news stories that it thinks you want, Mm -hmm. and everything is very, very customized. So I suppose, in a way, this is just like a huge sort of macro example of, of the way, you know, where they're sort of intuiting that the audiences want, you know, sort of like... Seth Rogan movie. I, I'm not picking on Seth Rogan. I'm sure he's great, and uh, but you know, and I'm sure he's a member of, of National Public Radio. But but um, I mean, just to say, just you know, they're, they're sort of intuiting that that you know that nobody could possibly be interested in something that wasn't exactly about them. I mean, I think that is a very contemporary assumption.
2: Yeah, I think that's true, and and I think that things get made not just in the movies. I mean, I think that we we were talking about that in terms of of books and, you know, chiclet and stuff like that. That is, at the minute, that yeah. something, this idea has sort of, it's, it's gone down a road pretty far.
1: I know, it's funny because in, I mean, in publishing, in, in the book world, you have a sort of um, negative image of this because the book, you know, there's an assumption that women read books and that men don't read books. So if there is a book with a female protagonist, it may have a better chance of getting published, although I don't, I don't know about that. But you know it's going to be marketed in a way that says hey ladies read this book mm-hmm. and it's going to have like a very feminine sort of cover and packaging and you know the whole idea that you know the book club explosion that has to do a lot you know primarily with women reading books and and i think it does what's funny is it actually you know manifest it starts to manifest and become a real thing yeah
2: and it that, starts to i i think so because it keeps repeating this idea that you know only one one gender is going to be interested in this and, and and after a while i think those things just manifest and and become true in a way and they you know they they take on certain characteristics that then are repeated and repeated until until it is true do you
1: see it stopping anytime is there hope yeah. i mean we um, don't see it in well, independent film you know
2: it's funny because when i wrote this essay it was toward the end of the summer and uh, uh, or it was after the summer and you know the, you sort of get you get to that you start have, you start getting tired <laughs> at that point of the year but then the good movies start coming out and so then you know suddenly you know i'm starting to see a lot of things that contradict what we've been talking about but it's just the way that movies are released and what gets what what gets put out at what point in the year
1: but i do think that if if one is an actress if one is a comic actress a comedian i mean i think it's fair to say yeah. you are not going to be starring in well, and uh, they the compl- equivalent of a Will Ferrell movie. Yeah, in and, and they do,
2: you know, every once in a while you come across a quote by someone um, like Isla Fisher talking about that uh, after The Wedding Crashers, you know, oh, every script I was handed, in an interview she did, she said every script I was handed, you know, the role was for the girl. And that's, you know, I think that for comedians that's, that's pretty true. And whereas on television, you know, probably right now some of the funniest and most complex and most original roles are women, uh, like Tina Fey in 30 Rock, or Mary Louise Parker in Weeds, and, you know, people talk about this all the time, television is this place where these people are, are allowed to sort of be interesting characters. And um, why,
1: is there an assumption that boys are not going to have the attention span to watch a whole TV show for a whole season? I mean, I don't know. No, I think
2: it's, I mean, I, I assume it's more economic, but... Uh uh-huh.
1: Yeah, it's funny because there have been a lot of female-driven. I mean, even back in in '99. I mean, my so-called life, that sort of you know paradigm, I think you know played itself out. We have a lot of, of female, you know, strong female characters on TV. Um, but it goes back
2: to what you were saying before. Uh, what um... I, you quoted from somewhere that th- there is the idea that um, women don't go to the movies, whereas for some reason that idea—you know—they don't say women don't turn on the TV. I don't know. I don't know why that I know, is. I don't know weird. where that. And also research the idea—the but...
1: idea that groups of young people would not go, boys and girls together. I mean, they they appear to be. Maybe they get there and like go to the <laughs> separate. Get a yeah. the, yeah. different. Yeah.
0: Listening to Megan Daum with Los Angeles Times film critic Karina Chicano. This is Socalo Radio, the on air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. On the next Socalo Radio, LA City gang czar Jeff Carr. As Director of Gang Reduction and Youth Development, Carr is charged with implementing Mayor Villarregoza's anti gang strategy. Will it work? How does his evangelical faith influence his approach to battling gangs? Car sits down with Los Angeles Times crime reporter Jill Liabe to talk it out. That's next Sunday at 9 p.m. on 89.3 KPCC. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, questions from the Socalo audience for Megan Down and Karina Chicano. Morrison and Larry Mandel are headed back to college. AirTalk and Pat Morrison will be on several college campuses this fall exploring challenges facing higher education in Southern California. The KPCC College Tour Bus will stop at Pasadena City College, UC Irvine, UC Riverside, UCLA, and others. More information online at kpcc.org. Weekdays
3: on 89.3 KPCC. It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
0: And I'm Renee Montaigne. Key soldiers.
3: Good morning. This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. As we speak, a news conference is scheduled to be underway in downtown Los Angeles. I'm Pat Morrison. Former Senator John Edwards, the North Carolina Democrat, has a book out.
0: More NPR and local news. 89.3 KPCC.
3: All things considered. Next
1: time on Day-to-Day, listener movie reviews.
3: Worst of the year. Anything that Nicholas Cage is in. I
2: saw, my soul to the
3: devil.
1: Hairspray. Oh, I
2: loved it. Worst
3: movie of all time.
2: Balls of Fury. And the only thing worse than that was... I know who killed me. Hated it. I know who killed me. Me, when I decided to buy the ticket.
3: You, dear listener, are the critic. Next time on Day-to-Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Let the hotlines begin ringing. As of New Year's Day, anyone in Arizona can drop a dime on any company suspected of hiring illegal immigrants. Advocates say it's already driving illegal workers elsewhere, but what's the potential blowback? As of January 1st in California, you can't smoke in your car if the kids are with you. And by kids, they mean any children under 18. And some late-night comedy shows are coming back without writers. What's so funny? Maybe not much. We'll find out here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m.
0: I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's time for the Socalo audience to ask the questions of Karina Chicano.
3: David Bloom, I, uh, one of the things that I, I just wanted to throw out, that part of the reason why you have, I think, more robust female characters on, on TV is women do watch more TV than men, and according to all the audience stuff but I'm curious about you know the international markets have have become a much bigger thing than they were 20 years ago and to some extent I'm wondering if the concern about making uh, these movies play well overseas is now every bit as much money coming in overseas it is domestically means that they feel like some of those more obviously chauvinistic cultures might not be open to a strong female character what do you think about that
2: two things. One, the idea, again, you know, people always come back to women don't go to the movies or they do watch television. I think that traditionally people have watched, you know, films, plays, read books. The human experience is something that we've seen, that we, like, get from from any human, and we always have. I mean, Flaubert's famous character is a woman. I mean, we've never, since when is that, I'm a woman, so I read the women, and the men read the men. I mean, that's that's not something that I think has always been true of yeah, artistic expression. Yeah, it's fairly expression. recent. I don't know.
1: Did it start with, like, the men are from Mars, women are from Venus? I don't know. Yeah, concepts? I mean, it's sort
2: of like, it seems like the, somehow the idea of, the, you Like know, a
1: human experience is, seems like not something people are often able to
2: right. get their minds and, around. And as far as the overseas stuff, it, it is, you know, it's true, absolutely, and that's why, you know, action and superhero movies are, are um, very popular, but... You know, again, like, I, I always sort of try to, when I'm talking about this, I'm trying to make it clear, I'm not talking about, I, I object to that strong female lead just as much as anything else, because to me, that's that's what I'm saying, like this, unre- that's the girl in the Armani suit, and the big bank account and the scowl with, and no personality. I mean, these aren't real characters. And I, I don't see how, like, if the girl in Knocked Up had had a boyfriend in a scene who was like, what? How that would have made the movie not play in another country. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> see, you know, I don't see how that would, would change anything. Susan Durende?
1: You mentioned earlier about the writers, the answers they got, that they weren't looking for strongly female roles or not. But I'm wondering also if a little of that wasn't that they don't want to, that's an easy answer to give a writer rather than saying we don't do movies by female writers or directors. I'm only saying this because I, I started a film festival for comedies by women called Broad Humor. And what we found, Broad Humor Film Festival, written and directed by women, but the point is that. That the the audience's response to these films was great, but more interestingly, after they got some acceptance in a festival, they got
2: more play, and suddenly they were acceptable again. That somehow, it's at the level of what stories are. If a guy pitched the same story, I'm wondering if it would. If you know,
1: is it's the problem of the female writer and the director as much as that causing the hole as
2: much as the Wait, actual actors. there aren't actors. that many of them. Yeah or because not as many of them are, getting, are getting produced yeah. on the, by the major, right. by the well, major studios. Well, that's obviously, that's a big problem. I mean, there is a big disparity there. And that's causing the whole. And I think that it, obviously, it does cause it. It's interesting, because I, I do think it causes it. On, on the one hand, I think that it's an obvious reason why this happens. And on the other hand, you think, like, those directors from the 30s that, that Megan listed, like George Frank Cukor, Kupfer. et cetera, they were all writing great, Character, so it it didn't seem to affect them then. I think that we're that's that's really what we're talking about is more. For some reason, there's a belief that we've like segregated what we write and how we write, and that's I think that's newer. Well, it's also like you sort of go
1: into the meeting like as a pitch. Like, what are they gonna like? What am I gonna say that they're gonna? I mean, I'm just you know from my. From you know the little I've experienced myself, and from what I know, I mean it's not like this is the story I want to tell. And again, not everybody, but this is kind of like the the default mindset is it's not I want to tell the story. I'm so excited about it. It's like what is this executive gonna like? What do the numbers say? What are the fo- you know it's like a focus group. Thing.
2: Well, there is a, I think patterns get repeated because something was successful, and so people look at it and think, why was that successful? It was successful because there was this tubby guy, and he got the, you know, so we'll do that. And then, and then it, you know, that gets done over and over again. I, I do think that there's a big element of that, and, and then somehow that becomes conflated with the idea that, well, we couldn't have a, a woman in the lead. I, but, you know, there's just theories.
1: Hi, my name is Sarah. Um, I've kind of noticed lately that a lot of the recent comedies come from the so-called frat pack, and it's a lot of um, men that help write their own comedy, too. And I, I don't really notice like a female equivalent of a frat pack that kind of brings their own friends in and helps write their own comedy. And I'm wondering if you think that that's kind of part of the recent explosion of these kinds of comedies that are men-centered. I mean, I think that with a, I mean, Sarah Silverman, somebody who would could easily do that. I mean, she does it yeah. every week on a TV show. Yeah. But
2: and she's been around for a really yeah. long time, actually, and been getting cast as like friend number three to the left. You know, again since 1999. But I, I think that actually, possibly, you know, what you're noticing is is more who gets produced because there, are, who knows who's out there that's not getting produced. I mean, we can't know or what scripts are floating around or you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, that sort of invites a whole other discussion about women and humor. I mean, that's, we don't really have time mm. to get into that. But, I mean, there is something, I, I think people are uncomfortable with it. I mean, it's, there's no faster way to sort of de-sexualize yourself than telling a joke. So, you know, except for us, of course. <laughs> Present company. <laughs> now you're burning for us. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Hi, I'm Jesse. I wonder, do you think that films that have, that films that are, are really driven by a, a female lead, a female star, do you think that the female characters as well as the male characters are typically pretty well developed? Or does it, is it sort of the inverse problem, or is it still the same where there's still no good characters?
2: You mean are male characters de- well developed? And-
3: a- as well as female. In films that are female.
1: Oh yeah, yeah like Sweet Home Alabama did that
3: uh, of it. I, yeah. I don't know. Well, I love
1: Sweet Home Alabama. It's one of my favorite movies. I will that's gonna be edited out of the uh radio version of this. But um <laughs> I mean in that case the lead was Matthew McConaughey. I mean, the, the, the so, you know, the answer would be no. <laughs> but that, you know, has to do with the limitations well, I'm of that actor.
2: And, and I'm wondering, have you, do you, have you ever gone to a film where the lead is a, well, you know, I do think that you see in, in certain types of romantic comedies that not very good ones, you do see that idealized male who's like, you know, that that perfect guy kind of character. Oh, yeah, he's a
1: sculptor and right. he oh, yeah. um, flies a plane yeah. and uh, he has he's independently wealthy. Right. Yeah. But I mean,
2: I think there is... <laughs> and he's great with kids. I, I mean,
1: I think that there... He you know, wears I, overalls. I, right.
2: Yeah, and that character is just as bogus, obviously. But he also
1: like is going to have a scene where he's drunk and he's yelling at her. I mean, I think that there is a little bit more... I just think that, that the sort of... No, I think there is room for imperfection. The, the Ben Stiller character is always... You know, he's like this nebbishy guy, and yet, you know, he's still appealing. I think there's always a little bit more room for nuance and, and flaws. But, you know, that's something that goes beyond movies. I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the human, you know, the, sort of the world we're walking in around, around in these days. I think women are really hard on themselves, and it may, more so than men are. I mean, just the idea of, of being perfect, you know, perfect mm-hmm. is really fetishized.
2: Well, I think, and that's something we were talking about earlier, when we were kids, the media images weren't, they weren't like they are today. So I, I do think that these sort of repeating this stuff ha, has the effect of just... It's self-perpetuating, and it, and it manifests, for sure.
3: Hi, I'm Don. I have a couple of comments and a question. I think your essays are probably accurate about what you're saying, which means that you've studied what it was like before your present essays. And seeing that, I'm sure you must have some idea of where it might be headed if there is a systemically endemic power structure that doesn't seem to get replaced. So, not the exceptions, but in the rule, do you have another essay forthcoming saying what would happen if it stays the same and how could it be if it changed?
2: I think that that things change mostly for... for economic reasons so what what happens is you know something something works and and the pattern gets repeated and so you start to get just this glut of this attitude and um... people start to get tired of it and then something comes along that makes everyone go hey women you know and then maybe that changes so and then it maybe goes in another direction i mean i think that that's 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 how things change if if they change
3: hi my name's john first i want to say that i too enjoy Interesting female characters in the movies. I, I hate it when it's the moronic female lead uh, just as much as you. But I think that the, the answer to this question is in the hands of women. Right. Um, just like, and, and the language that people use, like, we're not allowed to do such and such, or they were given permission, was something somebody said. But it, it seems that if you look at the book market or the magazine market, if you walk along the, the grocery store, and you see all the magazines, it's 99% women on the covers. And that's because women buy magazines. And if you look at the women on those covers, they look like people from Superbad or from uh, knocked up. They they aren't frumpy, average, everyday-looking people. Even Oprah takes off twenty pounds when she appears on her magazine. Mm. So I guess my point is, it's it's really in the hands of women. If women went to see movies like The Hours or went to see some of these <laughs> they movies, they did.
2: Well, they do. You know, but, but th- not to
3: the, the degree that they see something like Super Bad. Well, know? I
2: think it's actually a lot of it is is the um, is that they don't and this is true of all, of all adults of, or anyone over a certain age, is that they don't necessarily go opening weekend. And opening weekend plays a really big part in calculating, you know, in, in sort of determining what's considered a success. So sometimes people avoid opening weekend, you know, because it's mobbed and... You know, or because they're just not... Their lives well, aren't...
1: only a young person has the stamina to make it yeah, to the parking lot. Yeah, or the obsessive interest, in you know. Line. I
2: mean, it's an endurance so sport. So people do. They, I think people do go see... You know, things don't last in theaters nearly as long as they used to. They don't have time to build word of mouth the way they used to. So films that used to... Um, build that way, which are the kinds of films that adults would be more likely to see because your friend recommended, because, you know, you heard about it so much that you finally got around to seeing it the fourth weekend it was out, they don't have nearly the the chance that the big sort of grabby studio comedies do.
3: I worked in animation for many years, and and one thing that we always had with uh, characters that we'd represent that were minorities or women was that we couldn't make them offensive in any way. And if you're doing a comedy and you're drawing funny drawings, you want to exaggerate things and make the people look ridiculous. And, and so when you're talking about comedy, I, I think that a lot of, let's say you draw a minority character, then we'd get complaints from minorities. Oh, you can't make them look this way. So we always had to draw these really straight minority characters that were extremely boring to watch. <laughs> So it always ended up, you'd throw the gag to the, the, the fat white guy is what right. it always happened. And that's and what I, always happens. And it's true with women. I think that I don't know that women want to see themselves and laugh at themselves as the same way that men will.
2: Well, I, I think that's a really that's complicated um, question. But I think that you know, there's a difference between being a, the butt of a cruel joke and being um, a character that is, that is funny or has you know, some dimension. And I think that that's where people sort of get trip up on that idea, but I think there's a big difference. Yeah,
1: I, I think, again, I mean, it plays into this idea that there was this sort of assumption and then it becomes reality. I mean, I think you and I are old enough that we can certainly laugh at ourselves, but I don't know about, I mean, I'm just speculating, you know, a teenage girl, that's going to be a different equation.
2: Yeah. Because... And I mean, the idea that, you know, a, a a 16-year-old girl who who looks like a model is the only... Type of sixteen-year-old that we're allowed to see on the screen. How that's going to make anyone in the audience feel, you know, like that represents them, or 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 if if the idea that a normal-looking girl can't be in in a film like that—that that, that's not, you know, inherently. I'm not making. Really well, it becomes. That. I mean,
1: I know, I don't. I I think we probably have to wrap it up, and I don't want to get too far off track. But I mean, I've just noticed in my own. You know, I've done some sort of reporting around this, and I keep hearing again and again that proving yourself, coming of age, is now a sort of sexual proposition. It's about proving yourself as a sexual being, as an attractive person, rather than as somebody who has certain ideas or has, you know, traveled or read certain books. And it has to do with, like, showing that you can wear a certain kind of length of of skirt, it, the ambition becomes focused that way as I opposed mean, to another way. Yeah,
2: really what we're talking about, you reminded me when you said animation, there, there's you know, two recent... One recent, very recent movie and another animated movie that came out some time ago, Bee Movie and Barnyard, which are really interesting to me because Bee Movie never mentions the queen bee, and Barnyard was a movie about male cows. And I was like, how... It's so important for the protagonist to be male. Like, it's so important for us to just... Consider that the universal experience that we can all see through, that that they would go that far. I mean, why not make it a movie about bulls then, you know? (laughs) Hi, my
1: name is Jolene Pallant, and I wanted to bring up a romantic comedy that came out this year called Waitress, Mm -hmm. with a female protagonist written and directed by a female also. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on how that plays into today's discussion.
2: Well, I liked that movie, <laughs> but it wasn't a studio it really fit the what you I mean. Well, that music. you know, that, again, we're we're talking you know, we're we're talking about an idea of you know a certain type of mainstream sort of summer big budget, really heavily heavily market comedy. That was that was a very, a small movie, and we do see movies like that. A lot bigger, it, yeah, which well, which was very popular and made made a lot of money and did really well. But I I do think that when movies like that come out, I mean, we see examples almost every year, a a film like that comes out and becomes sort of a surprise hit. Because I think that there is a pent-up demand, if that's what you're referring to. Yeah, and I think people say that people respond to that, and they like it, and it feels novel. But it feels like a shame because
1: it's not reaching... That kind of movie is not reaching the people who probably need it most. Or not need it most, but would enjoy it. I mean, it's well, not, why aren't more, if you say the move, go see Waitress, your average high school kid is going to be like, what, you know? Right.
2: Well, also, maybe, not in every, you, maybe it's not so easy to see it in every part of the country. And, mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not something that you can't miss. It's not something with a marketing budget in the double digit millions. You've been listening to Los
3: Angeles Support for this public radio podcast comes from Acura, featuring the TL Type S with a 286-horsepower V6 and real-time traffic alerts. Learn more at acura.com.